I'm Dr. Sharon Blackie, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, This Mythic Life. Like all of my work, this podcast is drawn from ancient but still bubbling wellsprings, from the old forgotten pre-Christian mythologies and philosophies of the West. These traditions, from the magical stories of Celtic Ireland to the soul-centered myth-tellings of Plato in ancient Greece, are rich, complex, and beautiful. They offer up a world in which everything is not only alive, but has purpose and intentionality of its own. A world to which each incarnated soul chooses to come for a reason, to fulfill its own unique calling, and to offer up a gift which can only be expressed through a relationship with and participation in that animate world. Carrying the fire, carrying with us the image that we were born with, that we brought with us when we chose to come into this world. I believe that it's time to reclaim those old indigenous ways of being, to reclaim the foundation stones of Western spirituality and bring them back out into the world where they belong. Founded in authentic scholarship as well as committed embodied practice in the mythopoetic and creative arts, this work is above all about finding our way back into the mystic, about delving into the mysteries of wild psyche and finding a deep embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful animate earth. So in this podcast, I offer you conversations with people who can sprinkle a few breadcrumbs to help us find our way back home through this dark forest of our forgetting. You'll also find episodes which share my own reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, on listening to the dreaming land, usually with a story or two cast into the bubbling cauldron for good measure. So I'm here today to talk with Anharad Wynn, and Anharad works on a variety of historical and archaeological and cultural projects. Her specialty is in communicating them and making them accessible to people. And she is particularly, um, being a Welsh woman, she is particularly interested in the old traditions of Wales and how those can be brought back to life in a contemporary setting. This podcast we decided to do just in time for uh, the old Festival of Samhain as it's known in the in the Gaelic countries where my heritage is. And we thought that we would talk about how that festival is translated into our own cultures and also how themes and theories and ideas about the other world in the Gaelic and Welsh cultures come into Samhain and to talk about those more broadly. So, hi, Angharad. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast with me today. It's a great pleasure, Sharon. Lovely to speak to you. Great. Okay, so what I thought I would do to start with is just for those people who aren't too familiar, perhaps, with the festival, is just to say a little bit about the Festival of Samhain, as it is in Ireland and Scotland, in the Gaelic traditions, and then um, hand over to you to say something about the Welsh equivalent. So mm-hmm. Samhain is, is very much, in the Irish traditions particularly, it's very much a festival which is associated with the cycles and seasons of the year and with the land in particular. So Samhain was a lesser single day than a a period of time over which cattle uh, would be brought down from summer pastures and livestock would be slaughtered for winter. In the Irish tradition, it's very much a fire festival. So, for example, at the Hill of Ward, which is a great location near Tara, the um, seat of the old High Kings of Ireland, a great big bonfire which would be lit, which lasted for several days. And really, the theory is that, that those fires symbolise the power of light against darkness or light through darkness. And fire festivals were really, really critical to 
the ways in which people honoured the cycles and seasons of the year. So again, in Samhain, it was believed to be a time where the veil, if you like, between this world and the other world was particularly thin and could easily be pierced and you could kind of see through or sometimes step through. And any threshold places were particularly good points at which this might happen. So threshold places, liminal zones would be, for example, shorelines, riverbanks, fords, crossroads. And at Samhain, you had to approach them very carefully because you would never be quite sure what you were going to encounter. And it was also a time uh, for us when the ancestral, or is also a time for us when the ancestral other world is closer and more accessible. And so ancestral spirits, the spirits of the dead, can sometimes be perceived a little bit more. There's an interesting, just one more thing I wanted to say is that in Scotland, there's a particularly interesting association of this time of year of Samhain with the Kalyach, the old woman who creates and shapes the land in both the Scottish and the Irish traditions. Because in the Scottish tradition, she is very much associated with the, the dark half of the year, with the winter half of the year. And the, the old story goes that at Samhain, she wakes up after a long summer sleep and she presides over the next six months of the year where her sister or sometimes her alter ego it very much depends on the old story bride who is kind of a scottish form of bridget then takes over and presides over the summer half of the year so we have that association again which is based on the cycles and seasons and we have this concept of the other world being absolutely critical and more accessible at Samhain. So before we talk about the other world, which I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about there, I wonder if you could just say whether it's something about whether the Welsh tradition of this festival is similar or whether there are any any interesting uh, differences. Yeah, like so many of the, um, the Celtic festivals, there is a great kind of similarity and an overlap of how our different peoples in the Celtic nations and kind of well, I also, I think we should probably look at not just the Celtic nations, but the Britons. Um, I think I always like to make sure that people understand that here in Britain, until the fifth kind of century in the Anglo-Saxon invasion, they would all have been speaking uh, a Celtic language and would all have been Celts. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, it's part of reclaiming some of that for the rest of, of Britain as well. But yeah, very, very similar. Certainly a fire festival and a tradition of building two large pyres dedicated to Bel, you know, the, 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 the god, the, the sun god, the fire god, and of driving herds between them to purify them ready for the winter. In Welsh, we know Halloween or Samhain as Calan which is the eve of winter. And it's also the Celtic New Year or the Brythonic New Year. I think that's true of Ireland as well. Yeah, it is. In that the our old kind of Celtic ancestors thought of the beginning of the day as being dusk. And so it makes sense for them that the beginning of the new year begins at dusk because the growing process begins in the darkness where the seed is sown, in the in the barrenness of, of winter. And so that's kind of where the year and the whole cycle begins for them. But we have some of our own kind of traditions and things, one of which is the Mary Lloyd. Um mm. you probably come yeah. across Wonderful tradition. Yeah, it's do an tell amazing us more tradition. about that. So it's similar to the old os or the hobby horse traditions that you find in England, but it's different in that she is female. She's the only female of the, the kind of the hobby horse traditions. And we believe that she is some kind of a memory of Rhiannon, the horse goddess, and in her winter skeletal form. Mm. And so from 
from Kalangayev, Halloween, Sawain, through to Imbolc, she wonders. And traditionally, she, she would have wandered alongside a number of attendants who would have brought to your home, to the local pub, a horse's skull with a blanket attached to it underneath there would be a, a man usually holding a broomstick with a with a head on on top of it and it would come around bringing fertility and good wishes for the dark part of the year mm, wonderful yeah uh, i've seen some of those photographs with the horse's skull it's just um i don't know it's just such a wonderful image it's um yeah brilliant it, it's very old i mean i think when we start to think of you know the old uh, symbol for Britain, uh, to, our totemic symbol is the white mare. Mm-hmm. We've got Riga, Rigato, Rigantana and Rhiannon, Epona, they're all the same goddess. So it feels as if it's kind of got a very, very, very old lineage there. And you're talking about the Kaliach. Now, we don't have quite the same kind of, quite the same image here in Wales. We have what we know as Hibin, the old kind of witch, but she's not quite a Kaliach. But what we do have, and, I, and it makes me wonder whether there's a connection, is at Halloween we have Huchthi Gutta, the black sow. And one of the traditions is you never look over your shoulder at Kalangayav, just in case the old black sow is behind <laughs> you. And she's like a dark aspect of the goddess because pigs in Wales, in, in our mythology, are very much associated with the goddess. We have Henwen, the kind mm. of creatrix, yeah. who's a white sow. And so the black sow seems to be the dark aspect of the goddess. And I, and I kind of wonder whether there's a cl- connection there with the Kaliach. Yeah, it's an interesting one. We don't in the in the um, Gaelic or Gallic traditions have that association with with sows. Our animals associated with females would for sure be the horse. You know, we have Macha in mm. Northern Ireland, uh, for example, and then more birds. I would say so. We don't have that association with the sow. I think it was just a. I think I think the pig was a creature that really wasn't very prevalent either in Ireland or in Scotland at the time, and so we didn't have it. But yeah, the the Kayach, of course, it well, she differs very much in the Irish and the Scottish traditions because she was so much associated with the land and the culture. And of course, Ireland is a a gentler land, most of it, than the highlands of Scotland. So in Scotland, she's a much more inimical, slightly scary character than she is in Ireland. So she would definitely be associated with the bringing of the winter season. So there are all of these wonderful stories about her dancing across the mountaintops, followed by a herd of wild pigs, sometimes (laughs) riding on the back of a wolf and other stories of her striding across the hilltops with a staff and wherever she strikes the ground with her staff, then snow and ice form. So she is the bringer of winter. She's associated with storms. You probably don't want to cross her. She's that kind of character. <laughs> Whereas she's a little bit, she's a trickstery kind of character in Ireland, but she doesn't have that inimical um, quality to her. But she is very much the character, uh, the old deity, very old, almost certainly pre-Celtic for reasons I, I don't have time to go into here, almost certainly a pre-Celtic deity who who was very, very important, very, very much associated with the land and very much associated at least one Gaelic tradition with this, with this, um, with a season of winter and of darkness. Mm. I, I mean, it, she's a fascinating character. I'm, I'm slightly frustrated that we don't have uh, an exact <laughs> correlation for her here in Wales, but I, I suspect that somewhere between the Mary Lloyd, the Huchthi Gutta, and this um, 
tradition that we have here of a kahuraith. The kahuraith. The kahuraith is like it's more of a sound. It's like a wailing, uh, mm. often associated with with rivers and mist, um, and a, a, kind of a part of a sense of a haunting. But that word kahleach kahuraith has a connection there, and I have heard some scholars make some kind of connection. So she's she's here somewhere for us, but not quite as obvious as perhaps in Ireland and Scotland. Yeah, certainly in Ireland um, and in parts of Scotland, but throughout Ireland, uh, her folklore is everywhere. You know, there are mm. places named after her, there are hills, mountains named after her. Uh, every county has many, many stories about the Kalyach. She, she's one of those old characters that in spite of several centuries of, of attempts by, by Christianity, refuses to go away, which is, which is, of course, is a great thing. But it sounds like that last character that you were talking about might have some relationship to the um, mm. the Irish character the banshee if mm. it's a kind of wailing keening kind of character yeah. which yeah. is another which is which is a different character from the kalyak but very much also a, you know presented as an elderly woman as an old woman presiding over the cycles of death and rebirth and calling them out our irish mythology is very female centered and it's also very centered around powerful old women, even though a lot of the stories have tried to demonize them, you know, over the, mm. the, the last few centuries. So it's an interesting thing. The old mm. women really were at the center of it all once Great upon a stuff. time. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess the other kind of thing, the, the plenty of correlations in terms of the whole tradition of divination and ancestral honoring that, that happens around this time. I suspect that there are many traditions that we share in that, you know, from the divinatory traditions of um, casting acorns into the fire, um, letting snails kind of walk up walls and seeing what kind of letters they <laughs> they seem to make, which would be your lover for the coming year. All those those wonderful traditions. And we, we have a tradition about the Lenten crock over here, which is a tradition of putting a, a crock, an earthenware crock filled, filled with food on the doorstep so that the the darker ancestors, maybe, or the, the, the more haunting ghosts, um, take what they need and pass, pass the doorway by on Halloween. Yeah, certainly the Irish tradition and, and Scottish tradition are full of that kind of thing as well. So, yeah, lots of parallels, and, uh, undoubtedly. And, and that is, to some extent, the same in our different concepts of the other world and what the other world might be. We are very fortunate in Ireland in, in having probably one of the greatest stores of literary texts which refer to pre-Christian beliefs and traditions, albeit sometimes uh, in a kind of aside kind of a way. We don't have records of spiritual practices or cosmology or whatever, but we have references to them. We have one of the largest collections of old texts uh, that exist in Europe. And this funny collaboration that happened here between the Christian church and the Philly, the, the old bards who would have known the stories and the poetry. Mm -hmm. So we can glean a lot about beliefs about the nature of the other world from those texts, as well as from some of the folk traditions. Now, having kind of done my Celtic studies education at the University of Wales, I'm familiar with, with, with the Welsh texts as well, where there's less information, but it's very, very interesting what there is. So I thought we might just spend a little bit of time mm. talking about that. And again, in, in the Irish tradition, we don't have we don't have old Scottish texts, unfortunately. We have folklore, of course, but we don't have old Scottish pre-Christian texts. So I'm, I'm really focusing very much on the Irish tradition. The other world was not a place that you go to. It was not a specific location. It was entangled with this one, 
it was kind of, I want to call it a layer, but it was not really a layer. It was kind of an entanglement. It was almost like a veil that you could pierce sometimes. You know, sometimes if you were lucky at certain circumstances, in certain circumstances rather, at certain times of the year, like Samhain, if you were invited, you could see through, you could get through. And the other world then was was something that you could that anyone anyone could access anywhere. It wasn't a specific place. And I'm guessing that there is some sense of that also in the Welsh tradition. Absolutely. I mean, we, we call the other world anoven, which means the inner deep or the utter deep. And it is both, it exists in parallel to our day-to-day reality. It's, it's here and around us all the time, but we can also specifically access it. And often that means going in, into our inner deep, but also you know, one of the the the, the ways that uh, our mythology and our poetry talks about entering Anon is through water. So going into the deep. Um, singing is the other way. You know, um, states that create flow and that lovely, almost trance-like state. Meditation things take us can take us into Anon, but it is certainly around us all the time. And I think there are a, a certain similarities with what the Aboriginals talk about, um, the dreaming in that, mm-hmm. in that it's around us and in us and we can access it, but it's it's kind of here interacting with us, whether we know it or not. Exactly. One of the things that I worked on while I was doing my my master's in Celtic studies was was the interaction um, or the parallels, if you like, between these concepts of the other world that we see in these traditions and some of the ancient, uh, for example, the ancient Sufi concepts of the imaginal world. I, I've written quite a lot about about that um, and about a, an idea which um, a French scholar uh, who was an expert in those old ancient Sufi texts called Henri Corbin called the Mundus Imaginalis or the Imaginal World. And in the Sufi mm-hmm. tradition, they perceived various levels or various layers of reality and said specifically that somewhere between the physical world and the world of the intellect lay a third world, the Mundus Imaginalis, the Imaginal World, and, and that this was where archetypes lived, stories lived, myths happened, synchronicities came out of their dreams, tried to communicate with us from there. And it seemed to me, the more I dug into that, idea in that old um in that old Sufi tradition that it was very, very similar to the concepts that we see of the Irish otherworld, you know, again, not as a specific place, but as a almost a way of seeing mm-hmm. that we have to access. There's an interesting story in the Irish literature, which which I always think illustrates this perfectly, and it's in one of the old Imramas, the um, voyages, the adventures, and it's Imrama Bran, the adventure of Bran. And to cut a very long story short, one day Bran, who is a king up um, in the north of Ireland, is out hunting, and he comes across a beautiful otherworldly woman carrying a silver branch, tinkling apples, mm. the whole you know the usual associations with the other world. And again, she invi- she ends up inviting Bran and his men to find her and her sisters in the Isle of Women, Tiernaman, the, the, the Isle of Women, the land of women, which she says is across the sea. And then she vanishes. Not surprisingly, Bran and his men get up the very next morning, hot foot into their coracles and go off sailing across the ocean, trying to find this land where there are only women and they clearly want a few men. They have various adventures on the way, but one of the things that happens to them, which is very interesting, is they're sailing along uh, across the sea, and out of it pops this giant character, Mananon Maclea, who Mm -hmm. is often called a sea god. It's a bit of a misnomer, but certainly Mananon is associated with the sea in the Gallic tradition. And he says to Bran, hey, you think think you're in a boat, don't you? You think you're sailing across the sea? And Bran says, well, yes, I do. And Mananon says, well, to me, 
you are driving in a, a golden wheel chariot across the beautiful flower-filled plains of Magmel. And, you know, then he says to Bran, you think that's a big wave, that thing over there, don't you? And Bran says, yes, I do think it's a wave. I'm on the sea. And Manon says, no, 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 that's the hill of whatever it is. I can never quite remember the name of, of the actual hill. And what Manon then goes on to explain to Bran is that this is a way of perceiving. Mm-hmm. That the other world is a way of perceiving, and that his people, the Tuatheganann, um, in the, specifically in the Irish tradition, are able to perceive it, whereas humans are not able to perceive it. So again, we have this wonderful sense of it. Just yeah, it is something perhaps that you can learn to access, and certainly a lot of my work uh, that I do in in the deep imagination. And then the mythic imagination is about techniques to take us into that inner world that you're talking about and access the archetypes, the dreams, the 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 symbols that will that will shed light on it. Uh, I think it's it's fascinating that that cultures across the world have the same experience, but a different mm. name for it, and some different yeah. traditions around it. Um, I was working doing a, a storytelling collaboration, international collaboration in Rajasthan over the last few years, and Dara, who is the Kamaicha player that I work with there, he's a desert musician, and um, I'd been watching him when he when he would play he would listen for me and then he would begin to play and something in his eyes told me that he was going off somewhere else which was it was quite challenging actually because there were times as a group that we wanted him to you know really come back and pay attention because we needed to cue him that something else was going on because he didn't speak English and we didn't speak right. Marwari so he needed to, to watch us but he would go somewhere and one day I asked him Dada where do you go when you play the Kamaicha. And he said, oh, my, through a translator, my father, who was a great Kamaicha master, if you like, um, taught me and my brother that to draw a note from an instrument, it's not about years and years of technical learning. You have to go into the inner deep to draw the true note out. And his, and so we had this rudimentary conversation about Arnoven, and it was, yes, same, same that same idea that there is there is a world behind a world yeah to put it simply and that and a lot of our in in Wales we have Taliesin and Aneirin and the the early early bards that were close to the druidic tradition they a lot of their poetry is about how this world that we inhabit the the, the world that we can touch is the less real of worlds yeah that the world behind of the imagination of mythology of Anoven is the world that underpins everything. And, you, and we have this in every magic tradition in the world has a sense of so above, as above, so below, as above, so below, or as within, so without. Um, and that whatever is happening in that world behind the world with us, in that spiritual world, it has an effect on, the, on, on our reality, on our day-to-day reality. Exactly. And, and what interests me also is that, you know, we, we tend to think of, of the European tradition as, well, we, I think we forget that there was anything that we knew about pre-Christian, you know, in terms of different ways yeah. of looking at the world, or, or somehow we think that they're just stories and weren't actual spiritual practices or, or cosmologies or ways that people lived. But certainly, you know, all of that kind of idea, if you, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, it is very clear that they also saw the world in that way. You know, we don't have much that was recorded before Plato, but Plato wrote a huge amount 
about this idea of the world behind the world. And this was a world that was filled with archetypes or what he called forms and ideas. Again, the same kind of idea. The archetypes are the characters often that we call gods and goddesses, or they could be archetypal animals, or they could be archetypal patterns or plots even. And that these were things that had an independent existence from us. So, you know, the, 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 the old idea that we make the stories up, that the dreams come out of, out of our heads, is just anathema to this very, very old way of looking at things. This is the soul of the world. It's the imaginal world trying to communicate with us, to draw us back into an understanding of, of what reality actually is. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other tradition, which I trained in, which is a psychology tradition, particularly depth psychology and transpersonal psychology, pick up on those ideas as well. So we have have in the post-Jungian tradition, James Hillman, the founding mm, father of archetypal yeah. psychology, absolutely picking up on this idea of archetypes, having an independent existence, picking up on these old ideas of the world soul, picking up on the old ideas of the imaginal world and saying, no, this is what, this is what we're, we're seeing today. We just don't recognize it for what it is. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of areas where science is touching upon this realm now, if you like, in in its own way, in you know, really advanced physics and all sorts of things that are starting to to engage with. Well, where does memory exist? What, where does kind of why is it that people across the world have a symbolic language in their subconscious that is very very similar? And I think the the, the, the what it what is fascinating to me is while each one of our other worlds has many similarities it also has some cultural differences and i think that's to do my or my sense is that it's to do with the more culture thinks about it the more it creates it the more it shapes it in some way for itself so anoven has a, a texture and quality that is of this land of this place in some way just as the realms of the gods in Greece has something that is of that place and culture. And so I think there is an absolute interaction between the world behind the world and what it is and what we as cultural beings, in order to conceptualise it, how we create it for ourselves. I think that's absolutely true. And, and to me, it's also absolutely tied up with place and with the spirit of place. So you know, David Abraham, the author of um, Becoming Animal and Spell mm. of the Sensuous, wrote something that I absolutely believe as well, which is that different ideas are possible in different places, or, or conversely, that some ideas are only possible in certain places. Mm. And I think that that is absolutely true, because the, the geology of a place, literally the bedrock of a place, the animals which inhabit it, the plants which are there, give rise to different types of or different uh, different versions of of the archetypes give rise to different ideas different different gods and i think that place also plays a, a really large part in in the way that we see it it's just for example you know if you look again at the figure of the kaliach i mean she is absolutely imminent in the lands of Ireland and Scotland. And you can see why, because she is a creature of granite. You know, she's very much mm. associated with high places, with wind, with severe weather, with rain, with storms of the kind that we get. And you couldn't take her and put her anywhere else in the world very easily. And yet the old woman archetype will be there, you know, mm. in, in, in some other form. So yeah, I think absolutely culture and place have a lot to do with it. And 
I, I wonder, it might be the same in Ireland and Scotland, but I know certainly in Wales here, we have a sense that our stories are given to us by the land. So Absolutely. many of our stories are just completely connected to place. They are born there. And, and for me as a storyteller, one of the most magical things that I can do is to tell a story in the place that gave it to us. There is a yeah. kind of a, there is a tangible tingling of molecules and atoms that happens when you do that um and to be able to point to places that the moon rose over there and it kind of you know it, it, it went across the sky over there and she appeared here is is a wonderful wonderful thing to do and so much of the stories that we have in Wales, we have a lot of body of old old stories that talk about proper interaction between humans in this realm and the beings of the other world and how we must interact with them and over time they, they become blurred there's also a sense that that those teaching stories are about t teaching us about not just how to interact with the the beings of the other world but also how to interact with the earth there's there there is a set of principles guidances about what the nature and what the the rules if you like of man and manners about interacting with those beings on how and how cause and effect works as well how things that you do have a very definite outcome uh, and have their consequence as well yeah we have in um in Ireland, a, a large number of existing texts called the Denshenkhes, literally the law of places, L-O-R-E, not L-O-A-W. And basically, they're, they're in effect, they're place name stories, how places got their names. But so many of them are teaching stories. Again, absolutely, as you say, about living in balance and harmony with the land. And so many stories in that tradition about what happens, the consequences that happen when you do not take into account what the land needs, what the other world requires of you wastelands happen or inundations happen all the time in the Irish tradition. One or the other, you get a wasteland or you get a well overflowing, for example, if you do not respect the laws and the and the balances of nature. So that's absolutely right. The other thing, of course, which is which is a, an interesting one, is language and the extent to which language is embedded in place. The Welsh language, the, the Irish language for sure, really, really important in the telling of stories here and the passing on of stories here. But I think that this focus on place is absolutely critical because if you look back at the history of the imagination in the West, it has been a gradual intellectualization of it. You know, so you, you can see that all the way through from Plato, who thought that the intellect was infinitely superior to the physical and natural world. And that's one of the places where it all started to go badly wrong, as you know. But all the way up to, to people, the romantic poets and, and characters like William Blake, the imagination was all kind of about us sitting in a darkened room writing poetry or in our heads. It was very rarely about getting out into the world and listening mm. to the land and listening to the stories that the land is telling us. And so to me, one of the most important pieces of work that we have to do is literally bringing the imagination back down to earth again, literally grounding it in our places so that we go out there, we listen for the stories, we listen for the beings, for the archetypal beings that, that want to interact with us, that find it easy to interact with us in our places. Absolutely. I, one of the things that I do is, is, is lead pilgrimages. And this is what we, we do is we follow storylines essentially in the mm. landscape. And, and in, here in Wales, what is beautiful, and I'm sure it's the same in, in places that have an old language, 
in that you look at a map and you can read it almost as a storybook because the place names tell you where the stories are located. Yeah. And we have whole landscapes that are dedicated to stories. So in, in uh, northwest Wales, there's the Nantle uh, area, which is completely associated and it ma- maps out the story of the fourth branch of the Mabinogi, the story of uh, Gwydion and Math and Ariandrod and, and um, all of that kind of family, really. And it's just utterly fascinating. The tragedy is, is that we've lost so many of the stories. We have yeah. um, a text called the Triads of Wales, and it's one mm. of the most tragic things in that they were probably, that these triads were probably mnemonics for the Druids to remember stories. Right. And of course, because they were aids to memory. <laughs> it assumes a lot of knowledge. And you have, you know, so it'll be something along the lines of um, there were three great shoemakers of Wales, somebody, somebody, and the greatest of these was Gwydion Bab Don. Now, we know Gwydion's story, but we won't know the other two. And there are many, many tries that we don't know the stories of any of the characters. And so part of the work that there is to be done is, is reclaiming these stories, is, is going out to the landscape and listening for the stories again. And I truly believe that, you know, the stories are held in landscape and we can dream them back if we can but listen. And they won't necessarily be the same stories, but they'll be the stories that we need for now. Absolutely. I think one of the things that that, that we forget or that we have probably been um indoctrinated and is that stories don't stop you know stories do grow and I think a lot of that is the Christian tradition you know where you're told that the story was written down 2000 years ago it ended then you may not change it you may not mess with it it's true and and fixed and of course that goes contrary to all of these ancient traditions the idea that a story would be fixed would be to be denying the story its life and certainly in all of the traditions that I'm talking about in the work that I teach in the, the psychological tradition is very much about these stories also having their own processes of becoming so yeah. they have to grow they like we do they have to grow they have to transform themselves they have to be allowed to to represent the times and you know jung said that humans are story makers we are story making beings and a lot of people i think forget that so i think you're absolutely right it's absolutely up to us to go out there to see what stories want to be told what archetypes the archetypes that are in the land how they want to express themselves for today all of these are is a huge part of reclaiming it isn't it and seeing and and seeing how how they can be literally be translated into into these very very challenging social and environmental times absolutely the 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 welsh tradition or the, the welsh storyteller the traditional name is is cavarwydd uh, and um the root of that word cavarwydd comes from cavarwydd which is to give direction so part of the job of a storyteller back in the day um in the halls and of princes and things was to give moral and spiritual direction through story. And I certainly know from my own storytelling practice that I will use and turn a story for three or four or five different kind of topics or different things that I want to get across at a different time. So stories are very fluid. And um, yeah, to, 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 you know, to try and put a, a harness on a story is not a healthy thing for it. They need to have air. They need to be told. They need to be lifted from the paper and and kind of given voice and allowed to move and grow with the time and to, to be of service to the time we're in now. Indeed. 
absolutely agree with you. And so it, it's interesting, isn't it, how that I don't know what to call it, how, how that yearning for these old traditions reclaimed in some authentic ways, growing and growing and growing. You know, we see it in all of our different countries that there is a there's a kind of a turning back to the old stories, to the old wisdom, and a really deep sense that there is something there that we can learn that we have forgotten. To me, it's really a, a very beautiful thing to do because anything that gives us a sense of lineage back to something that was a good wholehearted way of living with the earth and with the other creatures in it, uh, that kind of bypasses that actually very short time in our history where we embraced a you know more mechanistic Christian or other type of tradition is a really good thing that sense of lineage that no we were like this once we belonged to this once we belong to the planet and to the earth in this way once we can do that again it's in us somewhere we just have to dig deep and and find it seeing mm. much, much more of that throughout the, these lands uh, than, than ever before. I think it's happening across the Western world. I think we've, if our connection with our own souls and spirit and the earth wasn't elastic, we've, strept, we've stretched it as far as we can stretch it. And it either now snaps or it starts to pull us back. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think the human soul on a collective basis is recognizing we have moved away too far and that there is a huge aching gap and a wound within us, which here in the West we fill with consumerism. We've been doing that since the, the well, since, since the time of, you know, um, the great conquests of the world, the Elizabethan kind of going out there. And it, it's about the same time as, uh, you know, that our connection between our soul and self and the cult of the individual was rising. And that continues, of course. And then we get to the, to the industrial era, which really kind of separates us quite tangibly from land and a sense of wholeness. Because at root, all humanity, if our first spiritual practice across the whole of humanity was animism, and the same was true here in the British Isles, you know, the, the poets, Amergin on your Irish side, and Taliesin mm. and Amerin, they talk about being made of the elements. You know, mm. I am made of the flowers of the nettle, I am made of the waters of the ninth wave. I have been this, I have been that, I you know, and they, they talk also about kind of being able to embody other beings, kind of almost like not shape shifting, but being able to sense the essence because there was a belief in that we were all one web and that we were all one together. That there was no separation between that rock and myself or a tree and myself. We were all one in this web of life. And we have Complete, almost completely forgotten that, particularly kind of from the last 2,000 years, there has been a, a great chasm. But, it, you know, from about the 16th century onwards, it, 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 it really ratchets up. And so I'm finding the same thing. People are really looking for something that reconnects them back to the land, but in doing so, back to their centre, back to what it is to truly be human. Uh, in this time because I think we've we can be we're such amazing beings we can be so many different things but we lose something of ourselves in doing that there is you know the principles of community and of connection with each other and with all beings and with this earth are somehow fundamental to who we are as centered human beings and I'm really happy to to see so many people 
searching and turning back and looking for something to fill their souls, which isn't that consumerism that we've been we've been indulging ourselves on to fill that gap for such a long time. Indeed, I think some of the the issues that I see around that it's a wonderful thing that's happening, but I think that there are also tied up with that a, a tendency sometimes to nevertheless approach these old traditions in the same ways that have got us got us into the mess that, that we're mm. in now. So there's a tendency yeah. to go back looking for dogma. It's like yeah. no dogma got us into this mess now. So some of the reconstructionist traditions, you know, which are trying to go back to to literally recreate in a very fixed and rigid way what our ancestors might have believed. And of course, we can't do that anyway, because we know so little, you know, even in the, the vast quantities of material we have in Ireland, these are mostly stories and poems and not religious texts or religious practices that the Christian scribes were not going to write that down. They might write a story down, but they're not going to write down a creation story. So there's lots that we don't know. But rather than going back, looking for dogma, looking for precision so that we absolutely try and, you know, wear the same clothes, do the same dances, water, sing the same songs as our ancestors might have done, that again, we we relearn in collaboration with the land and with the other than humans that inhabit us with it inhabit it with us, what might be appropriate ways of honoring those relationships now? Absolutely. There's there's no point creating a museum piece. It's yeah. not going to fit for purpose and it'll be too rigid. For us, I mean we my partner Eric and I, we hold um a spirit school we call Dadeni, which is for this. It's an inquiry, actually. Um, we have the first intake started last year. We're halfway through a three-year process of inquiry with a group of, a wonderful, amazing group of 14 people. And we do just that. We we learn, we look back at the poetry, we, look, we, we explore the myths, but not as rigid text, but as ways of allowing us to to do some dreaming, which has a framework, if you like, but allows for us to bring something new through, which is right for us now, but is rooted in the traditional landscape of this place. One of the other things that is, has been going on, you know, because here in the West we've been so desperate, we have been consuming other people's traditions, native traditions. Mm. And I completely understand why. Where there's a vacuum, that's always going to happen. But the, the shamans and things that I've come across, their whole wish for us is that we take a little bit of their knowledge in order that we go back and piece together our own spiritual tradition that is right for our landscape. So that is generally the will that is out there. And there's a lot of help and support for us. And certainly I found it very useful to understand what other traditions do in order to find the gaps in mm. my own. And to see and to sit with, well, does that feel right or does it not? Or maybe it does, but in a different way. So how would it feel right? So things, for example, like one of the things we've been experimenting with at Dadeni, our spirit, with our spirit group, is um, drumming. So there's no drumming in the archaeological record of Britain. We have no drums. Yeah. It's not in the poetry. It's not in the singing. So when it comes to what you know, shamanic practice calls journeying, I would call it dreaming. Um, I think it's a very natural thing to do. We do it as children, as daydreaming, but you know there are ways we can help people into it. The drum just doesn't work for me. It never has worked for me, and I've always thought there must be a different way. And for us, me neither. We... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what what the what the old literature tells us is that the way into Arnovn is through music. 
Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so we, we sing, we sing for each other. We hold singing drone sounds for each other. Yeah. And that seems to work really well. And it's a beautiful practice of half of the group holding space while the other half journeys or dreams. And then we swap over. And there's, there is something about one of the things that we're encountering as we do this work is what it takes to be in tribe and I think this is a really, for me, it's a really important part of, of what we're having to reweave is a sense of tribe, not in a us and them kind of way, but what is it to be in community? Mm. What do we have to do for that to really work? And it means things like reclaiming the value of word. If I give my word to you, what does that mean? We, we have a tendency in our modern world to hold that very lightly, but for tribe and for community to really work on a level where we're, where there's a spiritual element to it as well, a deep spiritual element, a need for trust, that has to mean something again. Yeah, it's really the, the, the concept of tribe, which is absolutely inextricably interwoven with place, is fundamental to every Irish text, every Irish folktale every Irish mythology you know the, the the ancient deities of Ireland were tribal and again as you say not in an exclusive way but in the sense that they watched over the people of that place we had very very few kind of all Ireland deities it was absolutely they were imminent in the place they were part of the culture of the place they were inextricably interlinked and we also as well as tribe or perhaps tied up with tribe there's a very very interesting ancient character which actually my husband is um, who's a, an old Irish scholar is is doing some work on his studying at the moment in the in the in the spirit of hospitality mm. which is critical to a lot of the the British as well as the Irish traditions, this sense that, and th this character, by the way, is the the, the hostelier. Uh, there mm -hmm. were these people who were enshrined in the old Brehan law, um, who who were basically they they would keep an open house for armies or you know anybody who 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 needed food and help and 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 hospitality basically and very specifically they would have to keep an animal a was to sheep or a pig i can't remember what hanging over a fire you know so that there was always meat and they would have to keep a cauldron of broth constantly going and if they did this for three years they could claim nobility status you know for example <laughs> it's an absolutely ca fascinating character but this sense of hospitality is absolutely fundamental that the, the, the but the hospitality goes both ways and if women are as rooted i told that old story of the voices of the wells which is believed to be from southwest britain uh southwest england possibly going into possibly told by a, a welsh storyteller where the well maidens the otherworldly mm. well maidens that come out of the wells give hospitality to travelers you know that they would offer them food from the platter they would offer them a drink of otherworldly well water from the golden grail and this was a hospitality that the other world offered to the people of the land of logris as it's called then and that was broken when a king came along and this text specifically says when a king came along who did not understand that hospitality goes both ways mm. and he raped the well maidens and then of course there was a wasteland so that whole sense of giving uh, you know again in, in, in both directions not just giving and, and not getting anything back but that re reciprocity between people between members of a community between members of different communities mm. i think is something that that we all had and that we've completely lost in our you know in, in a completely different type of tribalism that we see happening today yeah and i think enshrined in that is the traditional welcoming the, sh the stranger yeah indeed um, absolutely 
that you know that that it was understood that as a guest you had an obligation to your host and your host had a sacred obligation to to the guest and that was understood and i would say you know in when we're talking about tribe i'm always a little worried that people find that excluding and one of the things and and i know that sometimes when we're talking about indigenous traditions that can feel very excluding and what i would always say is that everybody's indigenous to this earth and no patch of earth is ever going to say to you, you know, go away, you're not of this land, I'm not going to speak to you. That's that's just not how it works. And so, you know, we have people now a group from all sorts of places. It's about, even though we're working with the landscape of, of Wales primarily, uh, and North Wales in particular, essentially what we're doing is, is exploring tools where we can work in a deep way to build relationship with earth and a, a, a way that we can honor the earth and our place on it and each other. And that those are transferable to whatever patch of land you find yourself on, whether you were born there, whether you've moved there, whether you've newly arrived there or have been there for years, it is just a set of tools to reconnect with a patch of land. Because in this time, in this day and age, I, I spent the last few days at XR in London. What we need is for people to love their square mile wherever they find themselves on a little bit better have a relationship with it and it's that that will encourage us to care for our world in a much more profound way indeed I and mean, the whole basis of relationship building with place that i teach is based on exactly that premise that the land's stories don't stop with any people you know, that they're always forming and that they don't stop at any time. So anyone who comes into a land respectfully and lovingly can find a way into those stories. That's not to say, of course, that you don't respect the stories and the traditions that have gone before you. But I think it is critically important for all of us that we find a relationship to the places where our feet are planted now, as well as to our ancestral traditions, wherever they might be in the world, because otherwise you're not really alive. You know, you're not inhabiting your square mile. You're not actually grounded. You're floating somewhere above it uh, in a way that's not connected with it. So I've always seen that as a moral obligation that we as human beings have to our places. Places want to be in relationship with us. They need to be in relationship with us in order to thrive. Mm. And we've forgotten that. We think it's just about us. And we don't see that where, you know, that whereas we think we need things from the land, the land and the creatures on it need things from us too and when you show up in a place open listening talking to the crows listening to the trees you know looking for the for the the deities the spirits in in the rock or whatever boy they, they show up back you know then then you actually get really interesting things happening Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, coming back to kind of Sawen and Kalangayav, that sense of the ancestors of place is mm. really important for me and, and for, for the tradition that I come from as well, actually. And, you know, if, if nothing else, Kalangayav is an honouring, it's time to honour those ancestors. And one of the things that I've kind of come to understand is that the, the sense we have of a place, the, the memory held in that place is also about the ancestors of that place and, and what it, they went through. And mm. it's about listening to all of those layers when we're listening and working with a place. And often there's, you know, some of those places have had pretty nasty things happen in them. And there's a lot of work, I think, that we can do to just listen and honour what's happened in those places as a way of reweaving some of the ragged threads of our history and our story. Um, and I think I'm, I have a gut feeling that that was partly what Sawain was for our, 
for our peoples was a time to honor the ancestor and check through and a moment to pause and see what had yet to be said, where there was no closure, where there was something in the ancestral line that needed healing, that needed speaking, that needed its storytelling so it was recognized, so that it could be laid to rest and not influence the present and therefore the future in the coming year and years to come. And I, I, it's, that's just a, a gut instinct for me. And it's something that I'm increasingly becoming aware of, the importance of where there is where there are stories that are untold, where there are blockages, where there is great sadness of finding a story that we can tell. And in finding that story, speaking it, and that's somehow allowing the ancestors to be heard and that sto the story of that place to be heard in a very, very powerful way that can put things to rest. Indeed, that makes sense to me. And I think I certainly see Samhain as the beginning of a time in the year where all of the things that, that have been hidden actually need to be brought out into the mm. light. And that always seems contradictory to people because it's a dark time of year and you're saying that you bring them out into the light. Well, yes, it is. It's time for going into the darkness in yourself, going into the darkness in your culture, going into the darkness in your tribe and your place and what have you, because it is a less active, you know, all of the frantic activity of summer, of growing, of harvesting has stopped. And so there is time to go inside and to bring it out. And I often see the bonfires, the burning, and this is a purely, you know, I don't know that our ancestors did this, but this is certainly the way that I look at it, is in a sense, a cleansing process as well mm. of, of kind of literally, we take things into the fire, we take things into the light, we let things go, we let things that need to be burned away and stripped away, be stripped away so that when it comes time for the light to return, for the sun to, to, to rise again, for Imolk and, and the, the growing times to begin, we are cleansed. Um, that deep sense of, of this time of year for doing really, really important inner work as opposed to the kind of outer work that we do in, in the other half of the world. And so the Kaliach figure for me is very much figure of, of the kind of wise old woman archetype who is about going into the cave with a fire burning where there is a constant flow between you and the fire and the fire and you and it just everything everything gets cleansed and, and, um, and brought out. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, we've, as human beings, we've gathered around fires for millennia, as long as mm. we've had fire. And I, and I think it's, it's fundamental to our humanity. Our ancestors are in that fire. Our, the memory of our place is also kind of kept somehow in that fire, the memory of our community. And so I, I completely agree. The idea of, you know, driving cattle through fire to purify them mm. is also those fires are used as a way of purifying whatever is unsaid, whatever needs to be dealt with so that we can go on and dream deeply and sow the new seeds, both within ourselves and within the land for the, for, for the coming growing season um, that, that, you know, that then emerges uh, with, with bulk and, and the coming of spring. These really important things. If, if, we, if we were all adhering to these old traditions, we probably wouldn't need as many counsellors and, and as many psychiatrists <laughs> as, we, as we do today. There was something about a community being able to hold those processes and to work with the time of the year and how our bodies feel that was truly truly profound that's not to say that in his that history was perfect it had a lot of problems um you know it, it was kind of quite a violent place in many things that's it so it's not to glorify that but i do think that there is there is a lot of wisdom in in some of these old traditions that 
is great to reclaim for our today. Absolutely. Yes. Fewer counsellors and more storytellers. I'll go for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks so much, Anhara, for taking the time to to talk. It's been a real pleasure. It's kind of like listening to just to my own ideas reflected back at me and vice versa. I think it's lovely to, <laughs> so. it's lovely to, to see the connections between the, the ways that we're both working. So thank you so much for sharing that. Would you like to just, because I, I seem to have lost my piece of paper where I wrote it down. Would you like to just tell people where they can find you on the web? Yes, yeah, certainly. If you're interested in exploring uh, the old ways for today, you can find all about that on dardeni.org. Our next intake, we will be opening applications next year for 2021. We feel we need to take each group on a three-year journey on their own rather than try and do, do more than that. Uh, and if you're interested in pilgrimage, please come and find us on dreamingtheland.com. Brilliant. Thank you. And we'll put that on the webpage as well so that um, so that people can find it more easily. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely speaking to you, Sharon. Thank you all for listening to This Mythic Life. And if you enjoyed it, please do continue to follow my work at www.sharonblackie.net, where you'll find free resources as well as courses which are designed to offer practical guidance for living well, living authentically, connecting with our places, and finding a deep, embodied sense of belongingness to this beautiful, animate Earth. If the ideas you've heard here resonate with you, you might also like to visit www.jaronblackie.net and sign up for my newsletter and my weekly subscriber-only reflections on cultivating the mythic imagination, which is also entitled This Mythic Life. These podcasts are brought to you thanks to the generosity of my Patreon supporters, so if you're able to support this work, and you can do so, from as little as $1 a month, please do head over to patreon.com and search for Sharon Blackie, or you can find a link on my website. So this is me, Sharon Blackie, signing off for now. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time. <laughs>